The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. All right. We'll take a look at a few suttas and um, start with sharing my screen and showing you this PowerPoint presentation. Purifying the mind. So I just put some words on this slide to kind of open up how, what are we putting into our mind? What are we filling the mind with? And of course this is, you know, all in the area of sense restraints and being aware, being aware of what we take in and then how we feel and how the mind responds. So some of these entertainment, news, advertising, conversations, perceptions, recurring thoughts, And you might, you might notice, um, you know, what really makes your mind calm and happy, wholesome, or what really winds it up and provokes discontent, anger, resentment, etc. So really in a, you know, for the moment, without all the the theory or the ideas about what it means to purify the mind, to really look at what it's like in our in our own experience. Does anyone have any story they'd like to share or ideas around these things? Maybe a questions or challenges that you find. You can raise your hand if you do. I know for myself, um, it's really helpful to have a pretty active monitor on my on my mental state. Like if I'm taking in news and I want to know enough about what's happening in the world. But then when the mind becomes agitated or um, anxious or resentful or some other mental state, it's not like you run away from those states. But understanding what causes them and where's the where's the clinging that turns it into uh, an actual negative mental state. Uh, something that's debilitating, pulling us down. And then noticing that if we bring in the Dhamma and we think about the nature of things and cause and effect We can use those same experiences and it can uplift the mind. If you have anything like that go on in your practice, any thoughts? Yeah, Marilyn, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just, I I find that I do have a, a fair bit of time spent with news, advertising, all that stuff. And at the same time, questioning what's the point. There's no, like, is there any real reason that we need to know what's going on in the rest of the world? Does it really matter? I, and I, and I, and I don't think it does. And yet it seems like a responsible adult should know what's going on in Europe or in the States or, Mm. and I'm, uh, I'm not sure about any of that. Like I, something tells me it's it's not worth the trouble <laughs> and and at the same time 
um, but there seems sort of some obligation mm. now to know mm-hmm. that stuff. Yeah, I I feel like this is a very useful area of contemplation. Like, how much do we want to know? How much is good to know? I mean, I can think of. Okay, so I'm a Buddhist nun. Sometimes people are surprised when monks and nuns know anything about the world. Like they expect us to be meditating all the time in our forest hermitage, which is great, by the way, <laughs> to do. But um, but I also feel like I do want to know what people are going through. I mean, if I knew nothing about what's happening in the war in Iraq, or I knew nothing about what's happening with climate change, I feel like that would be um, unfortunate in a sense, because when I know something about what's going on, I feel like the, the kindness and compassion in the mind really can support people and the the positive um kind of i don't know what vibes in the world (laughs) so i think if we come to it from a place of dhamma we can also catch like okay where where did the line get crossed into listening to something that just doesn't matter or you know enough about what's happening that you can put it down. There's nothing really to be gained by sticking with it longer. I guess my other part to that is that how do we really know anything? I mean, we how mm-hmm. do we know? Like they tell us this happens, but how do we, we how do we know? Because it's on the screen, but there's all there's all kinds of contradictory. Can you actually know anything? Unless you actually experience it yourself. Yeah, it's a good point. And and it's important, I think, to hold that um, to hold that in mind. You know, is what I'm hearing true? And how do I know? And I'm not ready to say that we can't know anything. I mean, unless we experience it ourselves, I mean, surely we we can hear the stories of other people's lives and relate to them because we've had similar experiences. And, you know, there are things we can know. Um, You hear the same kind of facts from different sources that are reliable. You know, I mean, how do we know the Dhamma? You know, it's like we have the Buddha talked about, you know, you you listen to the teachings and you really take them in and practice with them. And that's how you really know them. You do hear um, teachers that people have spent time with who are reputable and you can see their actions are in a line with the Dhamma. And then you can have trust, you know, you develop trust that they're telling you the way that um, you're t- they're telling you what the Buddha actually taught, things like that. We can use those same criteria, I think. But these are really good points of reflection and, and really looking at, well, how, what's the state of my mind after I watch this movie or listen to this um, program, or I have conversations with certain people and, and the the themes that they're caught up in or 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 have experience with you know we we may have people in our life that we find it's really draining and yet maybe that's okay because maybe we can be of support to them and maybe we can we can listen to someone's um problems and not become drained because we're not getting caught up in it. Maybe that's, maybe that's part of practice. And we also can have people in our life where when we spend time with them, it's really uplifting or we can spend time with some people and we find our bad habits really coming to the fore or we can spend time with people where we really see the best in ourselves emerge 
And it's, it's important to reflect on these things, not to blame others for any of it. It's all happening in our own minds and in our own, you know, our own actions, but to really consider, you know, how is my mind affected by what I'm spending my time on and who I'm spending it with. And of course the Buddha had a lot to say about being careful about the friends we have um, and who we spend our time with and how we spend our time. I don't know if you know about this um, passage where we we have a chant that's um, 10 reflections. And one of them is the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? How many of you have heard that before? Yeah. A couple of you. Yeah. It's, it's a good thought. And how am I spending my time and what is it doing to my mind? So one of the, that, that last item on the bottom there about recurring thoughts, this is something that can help us understand maybe, you know, if we have, if we have thoughts that come back again and again, and I've, I've highlighted blame and guilt here because oftentimes people have, difficulties with these and they can be quite um, quite problematic for the mind and you know trying to find the root cause of that if we're if we're if we have a tendency towards blame then it's useful to consider where our where our agency our um, own choices kind of start and stop relative to that of others no and and when people are acting unskillfully and we're subjected to that lack of skill, what does it take to protect ourselves to withdraw and what does it take to forgive to let it go so that it doesn't continue to be a pollutant of the mind and of course guilt is the same thing it's just directed to ourselves at least i think that's the case you have a disagreement with me please raise your hand this would be fun (laughs) complaints are always welcome (laughs) but i know for myself when I am challenged by reflecting on some unskillful behavior of the past, one of the things that's helpful is to reflect on, you know, this is just how it is when we don't know the skillful way. And even, and the Buddha talks about this. He talks about the, he's, contrast the untaught ordinary person with the noble disciple the untaught ordinary person is one who just hasn't been exposed to the dhamma or to the the way things are and so they don't know and the buddha will say well that's it's you know why do people do these things it's because they they don't know that's what it's like when you don't know and of course, the noble disciple is one who's who's been educated in the Dhamma and has been practicing it. And so, you know, if we can be forgiving of ourselves and others because we don't know, um, I think there's a real chance that our own mind can be at ease and content since we're living in a world of a lot of... Um, dark and light activity, um, skillful and unskillful actions. Any other thoughts or comments? On any of this? I don't know if you want to share it, but I'm really interested in 
sticky points where we find purification of the mind to be a challenge. Yes, Stanley? Hi, I hope you can hear me. I seem to be having some trouble with my my, um, Zoom. I can hear you Uh, very well, Stanley. Okay, great. Um, I'm looking at this, the, the, the beginning of this, the top of this, and the question is, what are we filling the mind with? And that's implying to me that's a choice that we're making to fill the mind. And I was thinking about this last part, this last set of examples, the recurring thoughts. And very often I feel like this is the part of my kind of daily existence where I find I'm more sort of, uh, um, among all those other uh, um, examples here, this is the area where I can, uh, the other ones are, are where I can choose to kind of um, close myself off. Mm-hmm. Um, but the recurring thoughts almost feels like a, a counterexample where I find, um, though there's scores of different ways, a variety of different way, ways that they can serve as examples. But for me, I'm often <laughs> running away <laughs> running away from my thoughts or suppressing them. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm thinking that's not what the, the idea behind purifying my, my mind is about. But there's something about the quality of this that I, I, I'm, I'm figuring you'll, you'll, you'll be going into this, but I, I just wanted to put that out there that that's something that I'm wondering about um, ah. because I'm dealing with so much. It's ah, a really good question, Stanley. Because it does seem like it has a little bit different, you know, kind of character. Like these thoughts come unbidden. Um, We can have patterns of thinking that got developed, um, you know, through experience and conditioning. But then consider that we have choices of how we deal with them. And I think running away from our thoughts is a lot, um, you know, a lot like what the Buddha was, um, you know, let me try that again. If we use the four noble truths, particularly those first three noble truths, with this example, the way we would with any other kind of suffering or dukkha or discontent or, you know, difficult feeling, then we can look at it as, okay, there, there is this dukkha, these thoughts, you know, we want to push them away. We want to run away. But actually what the Buddha says, you have to turn towards it and be present with it. So if you, if we think, okay, these, these mental states, this is dukkha. And if I can understand why it's there, if I can understand what's going on, then I have a chance for it to kind of unravel. I can see where it comes from. You know, it might be a pattern that got developed when you were young or someone in your life that you were learning from had this tendency, or maybe we carried it with us for lifetimes. Regardless, it's like we can we can start to unpack what's behind it. And then, of course, um, you know, the Buddha said, when you understand basically where the, the, the cause of it comes from, then we have a chance of it um, beginning to ease up, to cease. And so when I, and the the thing that um, it really works is to really let go of whatever the content of those thoughts might be and work with the feeling that's there with it. So you have these recurring thoughts and notice the feeling, especially wherever it appears kind of shows up in your body. And if you work with the feeling by paying attention to it, being with it, you'll notice that it starts to change. 
And when, when, we ha- when we do that frequently enough, where we're not pushing it away and we're not kind of indulging in it, I might say, like you're really getting in deeper into it and, and, and fueling it. If we don't do either of those things, then it starts to lose its power. And it can be a, you know, pretty strong habit, some of these mental activities. But we can gradually wear them away. Now, it also requires the, the Noble Eightfold Path. So if we're also working on our, our actions, developing our moral virtue, working on our speech, working on developing kindness and compassion, and the other Brahma Viharas as well, then we're reconditioning the mind and and all of these factors working together, meditation, reflection on Dhamma, so the sila, sila, samadhi, and panya, developing the Brahma Viharas, all of those things together start to really change the mind. And I, I'm... I'm really reminded there's a friend staying here right now who's been um, spending a lot of time in Monster. And she's talking about how much of an impact it's had on her mind, you know, to, to be around people who are immersed in the Dhamma and, and really um, treating each other with the kind of attitudes that are, you know, most prevalent in that kind of an environment. That it, you know, and and all of that spiritual practice, all of the meditation and, and um, reflection on dhamma, that it really has an effect on the mind. So the more we can fill the mind with those kinds of things, the more opportunity we have. The more, what do I want to say? It's it's like it's like. Um, you know, you have a sponge and you put it in a liquid. What's the liquid got in it? You know, if it's pure water, there's going to be purity in that sponge. If you if you put it into like oil, you're going to have something else. And this is this is the way we want to think about our own minds. Let's soak it in something good. <laughs> and even though it comes with all these patterns from the past. We can gradually let that unfold or unpack or, you know, soak out. Do some thoughts. Thank you, Stanley. I'm going to visit the next slide. So tools for purification, you know, those things I just mentioned, going deeper into the Dhamma and meditation and reflection. And then we've got some suttas here. Going to start with this one in the middle, in the uh, numerical discourses. Remember, in in the book of fours. So here we have this sutta. It talks about some different aspects of purification, pur- purifying the mind at Sapuja, Sapuga. At one time, Venerable Ananda was staying with the coast Kolians. I'm not going to read every word here. But I'm going to go to the second paragraph. And um, he says, these four factors of trying to be pure have been explained by the Buddha. Who knows and sees is perfected and fully awakened. And they are in order to purify sentient beings and to get past sorrow and crying, to make an end of pain and sadness to end the cycle of suffering and to realize Nibbana. And what for the factors of 
trying to be pure in ethics, mind, view, and freedom. So we can think about all of these as, you know, what is the effect on our life and on our mind? So what does it mean to be pure in ethics? It's when one is ethical, restrained, um, in the code of conduct. So he's talking about monastics here, but of course we all have a code of conduct, five precepts and other things attendant to that, conducting ourselves well and it says seeking alms in suitable places. So seeking our livelihood in a suitable way, seeing danger in the slightest fault, keeping the principles we've undertaken. So whether we're monastics or we're lay um, practitioners, you know, it's useful to look at, am I really living according to my values? The things that I say are important. Am I really putting time and attention into that? And this is one of the ways we can really purify the mind. Even though we're talking about conduct here, it all starts with the mind. And when we sometimes... When we purify our conduct, it actually has a positive effect on the mind. And certainly when we're, um, you know, following our, our greed, hatred, and delusion in our actions, it has a very negative effect on our mind. So these are all things that really support the purification of mind. So you, you think, I'll fill, fulfill such a purity of ethics and or it's you know if you if you see that you're doing something that's not in alignment with your values then you decide to align your actions with your values and if you see that your actions are in alignment with your values then you can live peacefully and happily This part, it says, I will fulfill such purity of ethics, or if it's already fulfilled, I'll support it in every situation by wisdom. So bringing in the Dhamma and using that purification everywhere in our life. Their enthusiasm for that, their effort, zeal, vigor, perseverance, mindfulness. And this is situational awareness or clear comprehension is called a factor of trying to be pure in ethics. And he goes on to talk about being pure in mind. So this is where the practitioner is... um, using meditation to purify the mind. He's listing the, you know, the first, second, third, and fourth absorption or jhana. But any, any degree of samadhi or lucid calm is a, is, has a positive effect on purifying the mind. It doesn't get rid of our underlying tendencies but it helps, and then we use it as a as a, a basis for working with those tendencies and habits, the defilements that are there. And then he talks about purity of view, and this is, of course, another aspect of what we're doing with the mind. Here, one who truly understands this is suffering or this is dukkha this is the origin of dukkha this is the cessation of dukkha this is the practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha so it's the four noble truths and you know just like just like we talked about before these thoughts that kind of assail us that we don't want or any other form of like discomfort or dukkha or desire or hatred or any of any of those things that cause and and represent or are expressed uh, suffering 
then this is the time to apply the the noble truths. I don't know how many of you really have a method for experiencing the first three noble truths. You know, we talk about the noble eightfold path. Obviously, it's it's a path of practice. We kind of know what to do with that. But a lot of times, we don't have much of a sense of how do we work with this is, you know, this is dukkha. That first noble truth. And it's it's about turning towards it, being present with it. Like I said before, not indulging in the feeling or experience and also not pushing it away. And see it for what it really is. You know, like when we're caught up in anger, how often do we stop and say, hey, this is dukkha. <laughs> what am I doing? Focusing on how much we dislike something, you know, and then to really understand what is it that I want to be to have be different than it is. You know, one time someone asked me, you know, like, how do I get rid of resentment? You know, feeling resentment towards someone in their life. And it's, it's like you have to look at what it is that you want to be different than it is. Irritation. It always comes back to the same kind of thing. So it is this, you know, see if you can develop, if you haven't already, a method or finding one that really works for you when you're suffering. How do I sit down and be with that in a way that I can, I don't want to say endure or wait or provide the conditions where that can begin to unravel and dissipate. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, Marilyn, did you want to say something? Is that kind of like uh, asking yourself, um, what am I clinging to? What is what is it that I'm clinging to here that's that's annoying me? Is that the same kind of kind of thing? It's part of it. You can you can ask, what am I clinging to? Um, my my good friend that I live with, Aya Chitananda, likes to play the game. Where's the clinging? Where's the clinging? Because <laughs> there's always some clinging. And also another good way to do it is where where's my identification with this? I'm identifying with this. I think it's me or mine. And there's always it, suffering involved. It seems to me that's what I cling to, self. I, almost every time it turns out it's... Yeah. It, it takes a little while to figure it out. But, you know, I thought there's another one. Where's the goodwill? That, that, but doesn't quite work with the three noble truths, so does it? Well, it's the flip side, right? It's yeah. when we're really, like, you know, maybe that question can be where's the goodwill to find the uplifting factor? in the situation or, you know, or maybe it can be like, um, you know, why am, why is that so absent in my mind right now? Yeah. Yeah. What's missing? Like, yeah. I think sometimes too, we just looked at each other and said, you know, things are really not the way we want them to be. (laughs) We want things to be different than they are. We We don't want Putin to invade. (laughs) It's not nice. We wanted the world to be different, right? Yes. And the, one of the main things <laughs> to come to grips with is that the world is never going to be different because is, there's greed, hatred, and delusion here. Until that's gone, we're going to keep having this nonsense and this misery, you know? It's just how it is. So it's it's not like we don't do things to try to correct the wrongs that we see in our in our lives in our world we do do what we can but also it's very important to just recognize this is sangsara it's got dukkha involved there's the bright and the light there's happiness and there's suffering and and when we can 
recognize that as a reality, um, it helps us to calm down and also be circumspect. Like, how do I want to spend my time, live my life? How do I want to train my mind so that it can be happy and free regardless of the conditions? And that's really what the Buddha taught, the end of suffering. But you don't get the end of suffering without understanding suffering. So he taught suffering, and he says, I only teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. Sounds like two things, doesn't it? But actually, it's one thing, because you have to know, you have to know that, that suffering before the end can come. And, and because it doesn't come from the world just lining up and behaving the way we want it to. Never going to be the way it happened. We get, we get a little of that here and there, but that doesn't last. So there's a question in the chat about what is situational awareness or clear comprehension. So almost much of the time when you see mindfulness referred to, the Buddha would also include Sampajanya, which is clear comprehension, sometimes translated as clear comprehension, or this is awareness, like you're aware of, it's not just that you're mindful, you've got a handle on, you know, what is this, what is this about, and you're clear about the Dhamma applies, you're clear about what's going on in the situation. So sometimes you'll hear stories and people can fully rob a bank or mindfully watch something awful happen or not do anything. The situational, the clear comprehension is you have, you have an understanding of the results, the potential results. You have an understanding of, you know, where does this fit? in what's wholesome and unwholesome. There are different, uh, in the commentary, there's like a list of four different things that you have awareness of. You don't even have to go into that. You just know for yourself. It's not enough just to be mindful. I can be mindful. I'm driving through a red light. You know, it's not, <laughs> not enough. You've got to have wisdom going along with it. And that's what that's, that's, what that's about. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's talk about this last one. Trying to be pure in freedom. The noble disciple who has these factors of trying to be pure in ethics, mind, and view detaches their mind from things that arouse greed and freeze their mind from things that it should be freed from. Well, that's a catch-all. <laughs> free, free it from what it should be freed from. Yeah. Doing so, they experience perfect freedom. This is called purity of freedom. And they think, I will fulfill such purity of freedom, and if it's already fulfilled, I'll support it in every situation by wisdom. So it's like, what should your mind be freed from? And when we really are using wisdom as we reflect on that, then we see that the problem is not from outside of us. It's not like I need to be freed of this boss that's making me so irritable (laughs) or whatever. It's being freed from the tendency to be irritable. All those kinds of same things we've been talking about. I want it to be different than it is. Um, I'm going to look at this next one here about rapture. So one of the ways that we purify the mind is by spending time in meditation and developing those beautiful 
mental states. And the Buddha talks about like, what's happening when you have these beautiful mental states. Um, rapture is a translation for the word PT. At least I'm pretty sure that's what this, I didn't look at the Pali, but that's probably what it is. Yeah, it's the PT Sutta. <laughs> so clearly it's PT. And it says here that the householder, Anatapindika, Anatapindika, if you haven't heard of him, was one of the uh, great supporters of the Buddha. He, was, he wasn't just a great supporter of the Buddha. His name actually means one who gives food. He would, he would feed the hungry and just do lots and lots of um, humanitarian things. And he was escorted by about 500 lay followers. So he was a popular guy. And uh, he came to the Buddha and bowed and sat down to one side. And he and in the him, he said, you have supplied the mendicant sangha with robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicines and supplies for the sick. So you've been giving the, the monastics requisites. But you should not be content with just this much. You should train yourself like this. How can I, from time to time, enter and dwell in the rapture of seclusion? So how can I, from time to time, drop into meditation and feel those feelings of joy that arise in the body and the mind? And when he said this, Venerable Sariputta, you know, the Buddha's right-hand man, he said, it's incredible, it's amazing how well this was said by the Buddha. And he repeats it. You know, you've been providing these, these wonderful things for the monastics, but you should train yourself to enter and dwell in the rapture of seclusion. When you're turning your attention away from everything else, that kind of seclusion, and you're feeling that um, beautiful spiritual energy. At a time when the noble disciple enters and dwells in the rapture of seclusion, five things are not present. The pain and sadness connected with sensual pleasures. So, You've shut off the news and you're sitting in meditation <laughs> and you're letting go of all the gunk from the day and you're really just bringing yourself in, into that beautiful state of pity, letting that arise. You know how that arises, I hope. It's more about relaxing and letting go than it is about trying to, you can't really make it happen. You need to become still, tranquil. So when that's happening, we aren't experiencing the pain and sadness of sensual pleasures. We're not, we're not engaged in sensual pleasures. And we're also not the pleasure and happiness. We're not experiencing the ha- pleasure and happiness connected with sensual pleasures either. And he said, the pain and also something that's not there is the pain and sadness connected with what's unskillful. But also the pleasure and happiness connected with what's unskillful. So do you have pleasure and happiness connected with the unskillful? Yeah. Honesty comes out. I can see it in the head shaking. (laughs) Of course we do. There are. You know, there can be unskillful things and we still, um, we enjoy it to some extent. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep doing it. And he also says you don't have the pain and sadness connected with the skillful. There is pain and sadness sometimes connected with the skillful. He says none of these are happening when you're, dwelling in that kind of beautiful mental state of spiritual energy. And then the Buddha agrees. 
So how does that help us? Can you get a sense of that? What's your experience of the benefits of meditation? I know for myself. Yes, Marie. I can't hear you. Unmute. Sorry. Um, Meditation clears my brain. And I don't necessarily notice on a day-to-day basis, but when I've had the luxury of going on a retreat, And then when I come home for a number of weeks, there's not quite the rattling that was in my head. It's almost as if a different habit establishes itself Mm -hmm. so that all the mental grabbing that I do on a daily basis and the reaction, if I'm not stimulated and I'm just there, I don't exacerbate those sorts of behaviors. And it's like, oh. It, it's so surprising when it lasts. Yeah, that's nice. You know, another thing that I think happens, and you probably have experienced this, but maybe maybe we don't always relate it to meditation. But when we teach people meditation, like from the beginning, you know, it's their first exposure to it and you teach them how to do it and they start to practice. We really encourage people to practice every day, that it's more powerful, has better effects than every, you know, like just on the weekend or something. But if they start practicing, then we tell them, don't look for the results for a while don't don't even think about what the results might be you know check in on it in in a couple of months or even six months and you don't check in on it around well like how still can my mind stay when i'm meditating or something like that you look at how your life has changed because your life changes and our reactions to things are different And people really, really see a difference in their lives. And my hope is that, I mean, retreats are great and it's it's really useful. And if people can um, keep it going, like you said, this is great that you can keep it going. Maybe you need an infusion again after a while. But to keep that daily practice up, is is so helpful. And there are a lot of different ways we can practice, um, you know, and the Buddha gave so many different methods because we have different situations that come up in our life and we're different. People are different. Okay, I'm going to go back to the PowerPoint for a second. This one's about stream entry. So this is one of the things that happens as we purify the mind. This is the first level, you might say, of the four stages or levels of enlightenment. And I want to take a look at a couple of suttas. So there are There are two parts to this. One is the practice for stream entry, like the things that we do in order to purify the mind, condition the mind um, for, for this level of awakening to occur. And those factors are associating with good people, listening to the true teachings, paying proper attention to those teachings and practicing them in line with what the teaching is. Let's take a quick look at the sutta. 
associating with good people, listening to the true teaching, proper attention, practicing in line with the teaching, and then Sariputta has asked, what is the stream? What is this stream you're entering? And he says, it's the noble full path. And what, what is a stream enterer? Anyone who possesses the noble full path. So there's more to it than that. We get to here. The culmination of the spiritual life. Mendicants, a noble disciple who has four things is a stream enterer, not liable to be reborn in the underworld, bound for awakening. What for? It's when a noble disciple has experiential confidence in the Buddha. So we've really developed that, not just an not just an idea, not a not a commitment it's it's an experience of the truth of the buddha's awakening of the awakened mind sometimes people get stuck on it being the historical buddha and that doesn't work for them but it's buddha is awakened that the awakening is possible that it happened and continues to happen the dhamma the Sangha, the enlightened Sangha, that is. It's where it continues to happen. Lay or monastic. And they have the ethical conduct loved by the noble ones. Leading to immersion, so meditation, samadhi. The noble disciple has these four things. That When they have these four things, they're stream enterer. And then he has this verse, those who have faith and ethics, confidence and vision of the truth in time arrive at happiness, the culmination of the spiritual life. So that's that quote is here. So this, so are there any questions or comments or thoughts or experiences around these four? Either either the four that bring about stream entry or the four things that are included in the experience of stream entry. Have you thought much about this? It's really uh, a beautiful thing. And that confidence brings a kind of stability into one's life that that we don't lose. Yeah, Marilyn? I mean, I think it's a wonderful thing and all, but I think sometimes people get um, mixed up competing for it. Like, who's got it? Who doesn't have it? Do I have it? And will I get it? It becomes like a some kind of hurdle or contest or something. It seems to me that it's going to happen or it's not. You do the things you do and you you, you do the best you can. And you, it, it's not like, um, I mean, it almost seems silly to me, you know, like, because mm-hmm. isn't it sort of a conceit to think, oh, I'm a stream enterer. Well, there's no way you're a stream enterer if you're thinking like that. But that's what I mean. I mean, it's... it's so see, you're, you're identifying the problem and it's exactly what we've been talking about, right? So yeah. if it's if it's coming from this sense of ego, yeah, it that's can. not it. And yeah. what, we need, what we need in our practice is to be so incredibly honest about what we're doing. So as soon as we're caught up in, I'm this or I'm that, or I've got this, and they don't have that, we're in the wrong, we're going in the wrong way. Yeah. And then we yeah. have, if, if we really want to wake up, if we really want to be free from suffering, we got to watch ourselves and admit when that's happening. And then know it's the wrong way. It's like, as soon as this becomes a personal thing, a, a personal 
kind of goal, a personal kind of attainment. It's not, it can't be. That's not what it is. We're far from it when we're doing that. So this is, this is important to notice. And sometimes it's easier to notice when other people are doing these things, but then we got to turn it around and look at ourselves. Am I doing that? Is there some way that I'm doing that? Because we want to purify the mind, uproot these tendencies. It's so, so deep in every one of us to see things from this position of personal identity. But when stream entry actually happens, that falls away, at least to a large degree. That we're that we know that this body and mind is not self. Yeah. Thanks, Marilyn. It's true. All of what you said, you know, it's like, no, if we're going down that road, we're missing it. And we need to turn around and get ourselves straight. So thank you for that. I have a question about the last sutta, if that's okay. Uh Yeah. I I have a question about the last sutta, if that's okay. Yeah. Do you want me to show um, it again or you can just ask? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it seems so the the one on effacement seemed to say that the jhanas would not get rid of I can't remember what it was, but some of the bad things. And then this one is saying that you know you need to act ethically, and this one is saying, Okay, you've acted ethically, but meditate. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, like kind of a riddle or like a do both type of thing going on. Yes. And this is exactly why we have to have that clear comprehension. You know, that wisdom of knowing like what we're doing with things. So in the effacement sutta, the Buddha is pointing out that, you know, if we are, you know, having a, you know, these wonderful mental states that's not enough to rub away the defilements nothing wrong with having those wonderful mental states the the meditation is good and the buddha encourages us to meditate again and again and again and again and again don't neglect meditation you're going to be sorry later he says but you know if we think Oh, because I have these jhanas, these beautiful med- mental states, that that uh, I've gotten rid of my defilements. Because you know, I you hear a lot of stories like that, like you know, some monk has gone to practice in the in the forest, and they start feeling they're they're having such great meditation, and they're feeling like, hey, I must be an arahant. I've heard this a few times, and then they. They go back to their monastic community and, and within an hour and a half, they're angry with someone, you know, it's like, like, so the, you, you know, you haven't uprooted the defilements and, and that's what he was trying to say. We really do when that anger arises and we really do have to work with it. That's the whole effacement sutta. It's a beautiful sutta. If you haven't looked at it, it's in the middle length discourses. It's number eight and it's an incredibly beautiful sutta. The Buddha takes us through five sort of um, iterations or, you know, like levels of working with our defilements until they are gone. And it's really beautiful. And so, yeah, we need to meditate. Those those, uh, beautiful, calm meditation experiences help us, but it's not the whole answer. And you can have, you can have, really excellent samadhi people can even be very powerful in the use of of energy but they may not have conquered their defilements and so it's you got to do it all the whole noble eightfold path yeah thank you
Let's see what else we have here. Oh, these are some questions for you. No idea what time it is. Oh, it's time to end. So I want you to take these home or you are home. So you can just like (laughs) write them down or whatever. Um, You know, I don't know if you picked up a practice last month for cultivating good goodness, um, but you could think about what you do in your life to cultivate the good and how that affects your purity of mind. You know, doing service, purifying your your ethics, your sila, etc. And just what does that do to my mind? And what activities in your life support an increase in wholesome mental states and what cause a decrease in and, and a decrease in unwholesome mental states. So we're taking the right effort, the positive side of right effort here, you know, increasing or sustaining wholesome mental states and decreasing. Actually, it's all right effort, isn't it? <laughs> all four. So just food for thought. Um, as you keep going in your practice. So I want to thank you all for being here and for your practice and your attention. And I hope you find something useful in this experience this evening. It's probably better than watching the news. (laughs) 